Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Lives lost. Gaza comes under heavy fire from Israeli airstrikes and artillery. Rakuten rejection cancelled the Olympics, says one of Japan's top CEOs. And streaming slowdown, subscriber growth is a minus for Disney+. It's Friday, let's make a move. show once again and we begin with breaking news from the Middle East. Israel intensifying its attack on Gaza overnight. The enclave has come under heavy fire from Israeli warplanes and now tanks and artillery. The military says it's not a ground incursion and no troops are inside Gaza. Palestinians are reporting that 119 people have been killed by the Israeli bombardment. Hamas militants continue to fire rockets into Israel. The Israeli military reported an eighth casualty on its side earlier this morning. And journalist Neri Zilber joins us now. Neri, fantastic to have you with us. There seemed to be some confusion late yesterday about whether or not a ground offensive had begun. Can you just explain what we're seeing here and what the latest is? Sure. Uh, Well, as you mentioned, there was an escalation on the part of the Israeli military late last night. Uh, For the first time, artillery and tanks were used to fire into the Gaza Strip, but not enter the Gaza Strip. Uh, So along with uh, warplanes and the Navy, they were targeting primarily northern Gaza and primarily an underground Hamas tunnel system. Now, in order to, let's say, make that operation as effective as possible, the Israeli military released a very vague statement ahead of the operation saying that its ground forces were attacking Gaza. That led to several reports in various foreign outlets about ground forces going into Gaza, uh, and that led to the confusion, but that report turned out to be incorrect. Okay, so that's what we're seeing now, and we're showing some pretty graphic images of of people injured as well. Um, Just talk to us about the domestic political situation area, as you understand it. To what extent in Israel is that playing into both Israel's response here politically and, of course, in terms of the offensive and the direction that they're taking in response to these rockets from from the Palestinians? Right. Well, uh, as we know, Israel has been uh, in a two-year political crisis, election after election, with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu Uh, fighting for his political life. Uh, This escalation both in Gaza as well as inside Israel with various uh, riots uh, between Arab citizens of Israel and Jewish citizens of Israel have only escalated tensions. Uh, And so he, some people imagine, is trying to use those tensions uh, for his own political benefit. Uh, Late last night, uh, high political drama here in Israel when a key opposition figure uh, broke with the opposition and went back into the Netanyahu's camp precisely due uh, to the conflict in Gaza 
and the unrest inside Israel. Uh, it should be mentioned uh, that it doesn't mean that Netanyahu himself uh, will have a government, will be able to seat a government and end the political crisis here in Israel, uh, but it may mean that he holds on for a bit longer uh, and perhaps, perhaps uh, another election is on the horizon for Israel. Uh, but really all of this, the political, uh, the conflict in Gaza and the riots on the streets uh, inside Israel proper are leading many to, uh, to question uh, Netanyahu's uh, leadership, shall we say. Uh, but he's himself uh, is remaining strong. Uh, he says he will uh, reimpose order uh, both on the streets. He says he will uh, crush Hamas and bring the conflict to a close. Uh, both of those propositions uh, remain to be tested. Certainly do. Neri, great to have you with us. Thank you. Neri Zilba there. All right, we will continue to bring you coverage of events in the Middle East throughout our programming today. But for now, a first move look at global stock market price action around the world. And the U.S. majors are set to add to Thursday's gains. Europe and Asia ending the week in the green. The reopening bulls dominating the inflation bears with bond yields stable and commodity prices easing from multi-year highs too. I, I also lost count of the number of Fed officials who downplayed the recent inflation data, reiterating that, yes, it's temporary and it won't force the Federal Reserve to act and tighten early. There's been nothing transitory about their view that the bottlenecks in both parts, supplies and labor will ultimately ease. But I think you have to prepare for volatility around the data points as that theory gets tested. While we wait, in the meantime, the downside surprise for U.S. retail sales, which came in flat last month versus expectations for a 1% rise. That said, March numbers were revised sharply higher you can take a look at that 10.7% gains. And we saw big sales gains at restaurants and bars. Key to the reopening story, of course, too. And another beneficiary, Airbnb, reporting a solid booking bounce. It's predicting, quote, a significant travel rebound, unlike anything we've seen before. Quote, that will only grow after yesterday's move by the CDC, perhaps, to ease mask-wearing restrictions for vaccinated Americans. But I have to say, no one traveling to anywhere like Japan anytime soon. And that's where we begin today's drivers. The Japanese prime minister is promising a safe and secure Olympics, while one of the country's leading CEOs says hosting the Games is a suicide mission. The conflicting claims come amid growing opposition to the event, which is less than 10 weeks away. Our Selena Wang spoke exclusively with that CEO. Selena, talk us through it. Are the Olympics safe or a suicide mission? That is a bold statement. Hi, Julia. Well, certainly we are seeing a growing chorus of high-profile voices in Japan raise the alarm about hosting the games in the middle of a pandemic. But the comments that the CEO of Rakuten made to me are certainly the most prominent and strong, critical voice against the Olympics coming from a corporate leader in Japan. I started off by asking him if Japan should host the Olympics as COVID-19 cases are rising in Japan and as the medical system comes under increasing strain. Take a listen to his comments here. I have been very, very straightforward about this issue and uh, the fact that we are so late for the vaccination, uh, it's really um, dangerous to host uh, the big uh, international uh, event from all over the world. Uh, so uh, it, it's, the risk is too big and, you know, uh, I'm against having uh, Tokyo Olympics this year. Do you think it's still possible that they could be canceled? I think it's everything is possible, right? I think, uh, you know, 
I, I, I see, um, I, I privately talk with many government officials from other countries, and uh, many people uh, is not really supportive of um, uh, hosting Tokyo Olympics this year. Why do you think the government has been so forceful in its determination that they will still go ahead despite the public opposition, including from business leaders like yourself? I don't know, <laughs> to be very honest. I call it, this is like a suicide mission, <laughs> to be very honest, uh, and we should stop. Uh, I'm trying to convince them, but not successful so far. I also asked the Rakuten CEO how he would grade the Japanese government's handling of COVID-19 and the vaccine rollout. Japan has so far only fully vaccinated about 1% of its population. And the Rakuten CEO told me he would give the Japanese government a grade of 2 out of 10. He also said that amid the devastating effects COVID is having on countries around the world right now, it is not yet the time to celebrate. And this, Julie, of course, comes after high-profile comments from other corporate leaders in Japan. You had the SoftBank CEO saying he is afraid of Tokyo hosting the Olympics this summer. And Toyota, a top Olympic sponsor, also said that the company is concerned about growing public frustration against these games. You asked the pivotal question there. You were saying to him, look in the face, and we've been talking about it for weeks, a public response in Japan that's saying, we don't think the games are safe. We don't want people coming to Japan potentially to spread the virus. You've got business leaders now saying, to his point, it's a suicide mission. Why do we think the government continues to push this? Surely it can't be about lost money, the investment in the Tokyo Olympics and and what that means, Selena. Why are they continuing to push this? Well, Julia, it really struck me that someone like Hiroshi Mikitani, who is so well connected in the political world, who he himself is actually pushing for the government to cancel these games, he says he doesn't know why the government is still so determined and publicly forcefully pushing for these games to still go ahead. But, I mean, experts point out to the fact that Japan's national pride is on the line. Some have pointed out that Japan does not want to lose face. It doesn't want to be upstaged by China, which is set to host the Winter Olympics in Beijing in 2022. You do, of course, still have the economic question. These are set to be the most expensive summer games on record. Japan has already sunk billions and billions of dollars into this. But the reality is that even if these games go ahead, but without spectators, Japan is still set to lose some $23 billion in economic losses. This is according to an estimate by Kansai University. So even if these games are held, still major losses for Japan. But as you say, the public opposition is snowballing. According to local polls, more than half of the population here thinks the game shouldn't go ahead. Even a doctor's union said that they are concerned about these games going ahead and that they could become a super spreader event even without any spectators. Julia? Yeah, what's that saying? Uh, Pride comes before a fall. And the fall in this case is human life and health, and you can't put a price on that. Selena Wang, great job with that interview. Thank you. Great. Selena Wang in Tokyo there. All right, let's move on. Pipeline payment. Sources are telling CNN that the colonial pipeline did pay a ransom to Darkseid, the group that carried out the crippling cyber attack. The pipeline is now up and running again, but gasoline shortages in the U.S. are likely to persist for a few more days. Natasha Bertrand Bertrand joins us now from Washington. Natasha, great to have you with us, too. It suggests that if they did pay this ransom, that terrorism pays. And that's kind of the opposite of what we need right now. What details do we have on what was done and um, what payment and in what form was made? 
Hey, Julia. Yeah, so we're learning that the company Colonial Pipeline did end up paying that ransom that this group had demanded last week when they locked them essentially out of their systems. They had demanded about $5 million in cryptocurrency from the gas line company, but it's unclear at this point how much the company actually paid them because there are negotiations that happen surrounding these kinds of things. Uh, what we do know, though, is that this ransomware group is based in Russia. The U.S. government is still trying to figure out uh, who the exact hackers are because this group is kind of a, a, a platform that hackers can go to to use their technology and their ransomware to attack companies around the world and try to gain uh, ransom payments from them. So the government now is trying to figure out who they uh, should be going after in this instance, where they are located, and whether they have any uh, additional targets here. Colonial Pipeline, of course, did shut down its pipeline, the major pipeline in the United States, uh, because they were concerned that the billing system of the company was compromised by these hackers. So it's starting to get back up and running now. Of course, there's going to be uh, somewhat of a lag before people see everything return to normal. But for right now, the U.S. government, of course, has uh, recommended that companies do not pay uh, ransoms to these groups. So it remains to be seen uh, how the U.S. government reacts to this new development. You know, it's interesting, but if you talk to the industry, if you talk privately to U.S. officials, they all acknowledge that actually for most of these companies, they have little choice but to pay. We need a new line on this. It is very tough. These these companies are put in a very tough situation, and that's something that the White House press secretary, uh, Jen Psaki, did acknowledge earlier this week. She said that the FBI typically uh, recommends, and it is their policy to recommend against paying out these ransoms, but sometimes the private companies simply have no choice. They are locked out of very, very important data, things that are central to the operation of their companies, and they just need to get it back up and running as soon as possible. Now, uh, what one report said yesterday is that the uh, company paid the ransom and ultimately the decryption tool that was given to them did not actually work um, by this ransomware group. So they ended up using the U.S. government's help uh, to unlock their data anyway, uh, making that ransom payment somewhat moot. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) No words. And actually, I was just looking. Ireland's health service operator actually was shut down. We shut down all its IT systems uh, today, too, due to a significant, quote, ransomware attack. So the green flag here is coming up for all of these hackers because... People are sitting ducks. We need to do more. Globally, need to do more. Natasha, great to have you with us. Natasha Bertrand there. Okay, let's move on. The streaming boom is slowing. Disney Plus now has 104 million subscribers. It's clearly a big number, but analysts were hoping for more this quarter. Quarterly revenues, meanwhile, for the company as a whole were down double digits. Frank Pelota joins us now with more. Frank, I mean, they're adding relatively less subscribers because we're out there doing more, which has a positive impact on things like theme parks for Disney. It's just not kicking in yet. What do you make of these numbers? So they brought in about 103 million subscribers. They said that's where they're at, that's where they're at right now, which is about less than the 110 that Wall Street was expecting. So the stock went down. It really goes to show how much Disney has transformed over this pandemic because now it's completely tied to streaming while they have all of these other units that are kind of coming back online. You have parks really kind of getting back into uh, the flow of things. You have movies coming back to the theaters, but yet investors are still looking at that streaming number. But that's the good news, bad news for Disney. The good news is, is that they have all these other units, unlike Netflix, which is really tied to their subscribers. The bad news is, is investors might be like, eh, well, that's great, but we really care more about your streaming endeavor. 
Yeah, and ever-increasing competition too. But I did see that they reiterated their guidance. 230 to 260 million subscribers to Disney Plus by 2024. So um, they're not shy in terms, of, uh, in terms of numbers. To your point, though, about, and it's a great point, the diversification that Disney has, particularly relative to some of the challenges in the, the uh, streaming space, the CDC change on mask guidelines for those that have been vaccinated. This could be a huge bump or bump up in terms of attendance, people willing to go to places, perhaps? I mean, it definitely could be. I mean, Bob Chapek, the CEO of Disney yesterday, said that this is a huge deal if you're going to go to Disney World in Orlando this summer. Why? It's because Orlando in the summer is about 95 degrees and wearing a mask doesn't make meeting Mickey too much fun. So losing that might help. But it also could work conversely, too, in a bad way, because think about this. We don't have a lot of data when it comes to children in the vaccine and children in the coronavirus. And I don't know if you've ever been to Disney World, but as much as there's many people like myself walking around Main Street USA, it's mostly a place for children. So it could be a little bit bumpy along the road. But as you were saying, too, in terms of the streaming, they're still on track in long term. So this looks to be more of a bump in the road rather than a long term problem for Disney. And we'll see how the rest of the unit kind of now picks up the slack that the streaming has been carrying for the last year and a half. Yeah, next quarter going to be pivotal. Frank Pelota, great to have you with us. Thank you so much for that. Okay, let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. India's COVID infection total has now topped 24 million. It comes after the country recorded over 300,000 new cases for the 23rd consecutive day. The government says it's ramping up the vaccination drive and expects to have two billion doses by year's end. In Singapore, officials are tightening restrictions after several clusters of infections emerged. Curbs on social gatherings and public activities will start on Sunday and last for four weeks. Okay, we're going to take a break here on First Move. But coming up, India's Modi speaks out at last on the COVID crisis. But what took him so long? We'll discuss. Plus, no vaccine? No job. Delta Airlines lays out the law for future recruits. We go behind the scenes. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move as we wind down a week filled with inflation news saturation. Tesla's Bitcoin payment re-evaluation, the Colonial Pipeline's hacked operation, And on Wall Street, further market rejuvenation. I don't know how I got through that. The U.S. majors are on track to rise for a second straight session with tech in the lead. Investors pretty much ignoring yet another big data point missed today with U.S. retail sales coming in flat for April, though the revision in March was pretty significant too. More of a reflection of the mammoth gains we saw in March, I think, there. And any reason to fear a spending pullback. Investors more concerned by the rising prices consumers are starting to pay at the checkouts. Those inflation fears sparking plenty of market volatility this this week, and we're coming into today's session with overall losses for the week. The Nasdaq down four and a half percent, in fact, since Monday. Alicia Levine joins me now. She's chief strategist and managing director at BNY Mellon Investment Management. Alicia, great to have you on the show. No inflation saturation allowed because we have to talk about it for the next uh, five minutes or so. What do you make of what's going on? Yeah, great, great to be back and great to see you, Julia. Look, the inflation read came fast and furious, starting with the labor report on Friday, which actually showed supply issues in the labor market and increasing wages. The market, particularly the bond market, 
pretty much took it in stride. I mean, it's actually extraordinary where the 10-year yield is considering the numbers that we had in the overshoot. We felt it in the equity market, and the equity market had a tantrum, and it had it in the long-duration assets. So those speculative tech names, long-cash-flowing long streams, which you would expect would be impaired by inflationary environment, that's what took it on the chin. And we actually expect that to, have, to last longer. So we advise investors to be, you know, invested with, with cyclical growth and, and try to trim the names that are based on speculation and not so much on earnings. So be specific if you can, because I, I get your point, what we're seeing here from the bond market. And I'd argue for the equity markets, too, because, yes, we've seen a bit of volatility and a bit of a pullback, but not that much. It feels like investors are still looking at the data that we're getting and the numbers that we're getting and saying, look, it's tied to bottlenecks, it's, supply, it's tied to sort of short-term supply issues, and those things will work out. And the Fed's probably right, it's going to be temporary. Would you agree? Well, I would agree. And particularly if you look at CPI and the components of it, we, we aren't surprised that autos are, are up 10% right. and airline airline fares are up and hotel rooms are up. I mean, that is exactly what you'd expect in, in reopening and some of the friction that's involved in reopening a shutdown economy. It turns out it's easier to shut down an economy than it is to reopen it. And those numbers are really very consistent with a short-term bump that you know, more or less by six months should even out very consistent with the Fed messaging and, of course, very consistent with the market pricing of inflation. The inflation curve is inverted. So we have higher inflation in the short term this year and lower going out 10 years, higher than post-2010. Um, but but still, we, we do have that message from the market that the market's buying what the Fed is selling. Short-term inflation higher, evens out over time. How long does that last? Because I was saying earlier on the show, I lost count of the number of Fed officials that said, look, inflation's transitory. We're going to sit on our hands here. We're not doing anything this year. For now, investors, by and large, kind of ignore the commodities markets, are buying that message. Will they do so for the whole of this year? I think that'll be very difficult to do. Essentially, mm. you have to get through this transitory by the summer, because I think after that, it's a duration issue in terms of how long it lasts. Then you start working on inflation expectations. And that's one of the things the Fed looks at for where policy should be. It needs inflation expectations to be anchored. And if those become unanchored, then there is an issue of runaway inflation. In the, in the real world terms, what do I worry about? I worry about wage inflation, because that can be systemic. I don't worry so much about goods inflation. We're going to see services come back online. That may be where the inflation takes root. And that's something really to look at, because I'm assuming the bottlenecks elsewhere in the goods sector will even out over the next few months. That's where you want to look. Wages, housing, rent and services. And the reaction if we see it. Oops, excuse me. The reaction if we see it comes from the bond market. That was the alarm. Uh, I think the reaction. The, look, the reaction, sh you know, if, if this were a normal world, would be in the bond market, you know, with the Fed's doing everything it can to kind of, uh, you know, sit forward guidance that they're not going to move for another two, two and a half years. Should be in the bond market. Could be in the equity market. We saw an equity market tantrum this week. Not so much in the bond market. Could be either. We do have mispricing of assets all over the place. So and in part, it's due to all this liquidity and, and the largesse coming from fiscal and from monetary support. So... If there are fears of long-term inflation going forward, you'll feel it probably both in bond yield spikes 
as well as sell-offs in the long-duration assets in the equity market, which is why we think investors should be in assets that really do well in mildly inflationary environments like financials, like real assets, commodities, infrastructure, manufacturing, and, infra and uh, industrials. And, and we like Europe. Know. We like Europe, too. You know, I was going to say, yeah, you like Europe, too. A recovery play in Europe. Like, absolutely. Europe is three to four months behind in vaccinations. Yields all over the European bond markets are telling us recovery is underway. We're about to get positive on the German tenure boom. Can you believe it? Uh, signaling that uh, Europe is well underway to recovery. So we think that given the cyclical and value nature of European equity markets, that's a great place for investors to be investing right now. Agree. Makes sense to me. Alicia, the Star Destroyer, did you guys make that, your, you and your family make that during the pandemic? I did not do it at all. It's my children. My children are <laughs> engineers, and this is what we did during lockdown in New York City. <laughs> 7,490 pieces. Wow. Talented family. Thank you, Alicia. I've been, asking, I've been dying to ask that for months and months and months. So here we go. Alicia Levy, great to chat to you. Chief Strategist at BMY Mellon Investment Management. Thank you. We're back after this. Welcome back to First Move, US markets trading for the final trading session of the week. And we've got that TGIF vibe for all the Wall Street majors. I think a continuation of the across the board bounce we saw in the trading session on Thursday. But there's no Wall Street magic for Disney. Shares are falling in early trade on news that it signed up some six million subscribers less than analysts had hoped. Revenues at the theme park that are still ramping up operations after lockdown remain under pressure, too, as we discussed. This quarter is going to be pivotal. And from Disney to Dogecoin, Dogecoin unleashed as Coinbase says that consumers will be able to buy and sell the coin on its app by the summer. Elon Musk also giving Dogecoin a further boost, perhaps tweeting that he is, quote, working with Doge devs, I think he means developers, to improve system transaction efficiency, potentially promising. I mean, the founders left long ago, so I don't know about that, but we'll see. This is CNN Breaking News. All right, returning now to our top story, the latest on the conflict between Israelis and the Palestinians. Israel stepping up its bombardment of Gaza with planes, tanks and artillery. However, the Israeli military says no troops are inside Gaza after some confusion on that matter earlier. The Palestinians report 119 people have been killed by the Israeli bombardment, with hundreds more injured. Meanwhile, Hamas militants continue to fire rockets into Israel, killing eight Israelis. Joining us now is Ian Bremner, president of Eurasia Group and G Zero Media. Ian, great to have you on the show. Thank you for joining us. I think a lot of people looking at the situation here and how quickly things have deteriorated and asking how close we are to all-out war. Your view? Um, it, it's possible, but I wouldn't say it's likely. Uh, I think one of the reasons uh, why you see the Israeli Defense Forces um, engaging in artillery uh, and, and tank shelling, um, which is, of course, indiscriminate in terms of the ability uh, to avoid targeting civilians, is because they're trying to put more pressure um, on elites uh, in Gaza, those that are close to the Hamas leadership, to show that there's going to be real damage done if Hamas continues. Um, you know, mean, meanwhile, um, I, I think uh, if we had seen new uh, Hamas technologies, they're using the same kind of uh, rockets that they generally had uh, almost 10 years ago when we saw the last uh, firing. We're not seeing advanced drones, for example. We're not seeing significant cyber attacks against Israel. 
that would have been a game changer, the way we saw between Armenia and Azerbaijan, for example, with uh, weapons provided by the Turks, which really changed the balance of that war. We're not seeing that right now. So, I mean, it's horrible to see uh, enormous uh, amounts of, uh, of violence and bloodshed, not only in terms of Palestinians in Gaza, but also increasingly between Israeli Arabs and Jews inside Israel proper. Um, and, uh, and, and it's, it's going to be very hard uh, to just band-aid over uh, the, uh, the political wounds uh, that are going to be emerging as a consequence of this. Uh, but I would be surprised if it tipped into all-out war. There were reports this weekend, to your point about the Israelis applying pressure here, that Hamas asked for a ceasefire and the Israelis rejected it. What's the outcome here, to your point, if, if that was a request, it was rejected? How much further then does this well, go? a couple of things. Let's keep in mind that Israel doesn't have a government um, and that Prime Minister Netanyahu, if he had lost uh, the, his election bid, as looked increasingly likely before this violence broke out, um, he was going to face these corruption charges, potentially be forced uh, to look at a jail term. Um, now, just in the last 24 hours, uh, the leader of the opposition trying to put a government together, and they were very close to putting together a coalition, Natalie Bennett, um, has pulled out and said that they can't actually form a coalition uh, with a number of other parties would have been raised with, including an Arab-Israeli party. And the escalation of violence is precisely what made that fall apart. So now instead, Bibi Netanyahu is facing a fifth Israeli election, and he's still prime minister. So there was strong incentive for Netanyahu politically um, to escalate tensions, just as there has been some political incentive for Hamas to escalate tensions, because there were supposed to be elections for the first time in a decade um, in the Palestinian territories. And uh, Mahmoud Abbas, uh, head of the Palestinian Authority um, in the West Bank, uh, de decided to suspend with no date in place uh, those elections in principle because he didn't have a clarity on how they were going to have the vote in East Jerusalem, but in reality because he knew he was going to lose to Hamas. So you have two political players here, both in Israel and among the Palestinians, that had incentives to make this worse. Does it remain contained? to the Israelis and the Palestinians. I just wonder how much of a priority this is for other Arabs in the region. I mean, we've already seen protests now popping up in, in Jordan. My mind goes to the Abraham Accords, the sort of normalization agreements between Israel and other Middle Eastern nations, the UAE, Sudan, for example. How does this play into that, if at all? I, I, well, there are two different questions. I do think it is a priority for Arabs in the region, and you will see demonstrations and protests on the street. But that does not mean that it is a priority for the governments of the region. It is not, uh, you know, despite the fact uh, that uh, the Iranians have been engaged in significant support for organizations like Hamas, Saudi Arabia and Iran are now engaging in direct conversations to try to have broker some kind of rapprochement between them. Uh, the Emirates have certainly condemned the violence and they've asked for the Israelis um, to stand down. But this has in no way threatened the Abraham Accords that have brokered direct diplomatic engagement, uh, a, a creation of relations between Israel and the UAE, Israel and Morocco, Israel and Bahrain, and closer relations with the Saudis. Those things are all true. As well as for the Biden administration, I would say the prioritization of Israel and Palestine, which, of course, when Biden was vice president, 
then Secretary of State Kerry spent his first year and a half. Israel-Palestine was the absolute top priority for uh, the Secretary of State um, when, uh, when Biden was vice president. It's nowhere close to that right now. It's not for the Americans. Um, it's not uh, for most of the countries in the Middle East. And that, of course, puts the Palestinians in a dramatically more difficult position. So what's the most likely path to a calming of this situation and mediation in light of all of the factors we just discussed? Uh, well, the fact that Netanyahu uh, now lives to fight another day politically and the fact that Hamas is in a stronger position vis-a-vis the Palestinian Authority means that both have accomplished proximate goals for themselves in a narrow way domestically. So I do think that you can see a ceasefire emerging in the next couple of weeks. A little more punishment uh, being meted out by the Israelis, more rocket strikes, more violence um, from Hamas, but not much more than that. And then you have, um, you know, of course, uh, no resolution whatsoever on the broader issue, which is that the Palestinians don't have vaccines. Palestinians living in Gaza have 50% unemployment. They've got massive hunger. They have no educational prospects and they can't get out. Um, and they have no prospects at a Palestinian state. Um, the balance of power has shifted dramatically uh, and increasingly both in on the ground between Israel and Palestine and also in the broader region towards the Israelis. And I don't see anything that's gonna change that in the near term future. Yeah, it's bleak. When you put it like that, it's bleak either way. Um, I want to move on because uh, I want to get your wisdom on what we've seen in terms of the colonial pipeline. You tweeted, geeks with laptops shut down a pipeline serving 45% of America's oil refineries. And, and that's the truth here. And we were discussing earlier on in the show, colonial, it seems, has paid the ransom to these cyber terrorists. Ian, you've been warning about this for years. The world, the United States, deeply unprepared to handle these kind of risks. And they're escalating. Yeah, we, we just, I mean, a cyber offense is extremely strong on the part of government players like the U.S. and Russia and China, but also on the part increasingly of non-state actors, of criminal syndicates. And, you know, the fact that this was a $5 million ransom that was immediately paid, uh, they probably could have gotten a lot more than that. But there's no defense capability of so much critical infrastructure in the United States and around the world to prevent this from happening. That what the Americans need to do, I mean, yes, we need to invest more in cyber defenses for these country, companies. What we really need to do is we need to make, create a cost for the governments that are harboring or, these organizations and know they're harboring them, that if they don't, if they persist and allow these organizations to make money with reckless abandon at the expense of rule of law around the world, then they're going to have to be sanctioned in a much more serious and compelling way. And that, that price has not been paid by the Russians so far. We're going to need them to pay it. And define we. Is it a unilateral action uh, by the United, United States, States or do we need American to do it collectively? Allies. I mean, uh, this, yeah. this, company that engaged, this company that engaged in the hack um, does not attack companies in Russia. Um, and, uh, you know, but, but outside of the former Soviet states, they hit pretty much everybody. Um, and, uh, and, and they even outsource their malware and a help desk. They license it to other organizations for a percentage of the ransom. That, that kind of mature, sophisticated criminal network operating with reckless abandon inside Russia is completely, the Russian government is aware of 
and wholeheartedly tolerates that behavior. And, and so you're going to need to see sector sanctions, sanctions against oligarchs, targeted cyber attacks by the Americans against the Kremlin and against people that are close to the Kremlin so that they actually think there are consequences from them persisting in this behavior. Otherwise, what you've just seen uh, with uh, Colonial Pipeline is, uh, is, is the tip of the iceberg. This is going to expand. There is no incentive for these organizations to in any way moderate their behavior right now. Yeah, we need a material deterrent effect. Solar winds are now colonial. I want to move on and talk to you about India, Ian, and, and understand what you think about what's going on there. The Indian Express headline caught my eye today. I've, I've got it online and I can read it to our viewers. The headline says, India feels like a ship that's totally adrift. The horror of what's happening seems finally to have pierced the echo chamber in which Narendra Modi is sealed. He spoke for the first time in three weeks today. He denied, he said the pandemic was over. He was giving vaccines to other nations. And now here they find themselves in chaos. What do you, what do you think of what's going on in India? Uh- Modi uh, preemptively declared victory over coronavirus when he spoke at the World Economic Forum virtually back in January. It was by far the biggest mistake of his premiership to date. Um, And yes, the Indian government was uh, sending out vaccines. A lot of Indians were very proud that they were able to do that, but they weren't actually stockpiling for themselves. And Modi, because he had centralized control, remember in the United States, President Trump was saying, it's up to the states, you guys have to get it done. No, in India, Modi took responsibility himself and then declared victory himself. And then as it started to explode, he disappeared. And it has been a disaster where the Indian people feel like they have no one to turn to, they are on their own. And and we've seen um, the record levels of cases Um, and deaths in India. They are the epicenter of the global pandemic today. You're going to see a lot more spread globally. You're going to see a lot more variants globally as a consequence of that being completely unchecked. You're also seeing a suspension of Indian vaccine export, and they are the largest producers of vaccines in the world. Modi clearly is going to face consequences for this going forward. Very, Very quickly, what consequences? Well, his his popularity is going to decrease. We'll see what happens in upcoming elections. I expect that he's going to uh, he's going to feel it in the polls. Um, and uh, and and whether or not Modi, I mean, for the last couple of years, Modi has been this untouchable democratic strongman in India. Even as he makes mistakes in rolling out demonetization or in going after the farmers and the big demonstrations, this is by far the biggest hit to his administration. He's not facing re-election himself anytime soon, but his party is in states across the country. I expect they're not going to perform well. Mm. Ian, great to get your wisdom. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, Ian uh, Bremer there, president of Eurasia Group and GCRO Media. Thank you. More next. You're with First Move. Welcome back to First Move. Fully vaccinated Americans now allowed to shed the masks and putting vaccinations at work in the spotlight is the CEO of Delta Airlines. He told our Richard Quest all new hires must be vaccinated before they start their job. Delta has converted its flight museum into one of Georgia's biggest vaccination centers. Ed Bastian gave Richard an exclusive tour. 
Well, we have been involved with testing right through the pandemic. So we were testing all of our employees every single week, tens and tens of thousands of, of our employees to keep them safe from the disease and understand the asymptomatic spread. So, and we were working very closely with CVS in doing that. So it became natural when the vaccines came available that we already had the apparatus in place to then start turning it into vaccinations rather than just simply testing. Wow. And we worked with the state of Georgia and they not only have provided us allocations to do our people here in the museum, but outside in our parking lot, parking lot we have drive-through windows where we're doing up to 5,000 people a day. 5,000 a day? Okay. 5,000 a day. So, Incredible. Yeah. Uh, so, so here you got here. So here you're coming to the jet age. Absolutely. <laughs> so we uh, we're coming into the jet age here in the museum, and we've moved from the registration area now to the actual vaccination center where you're going to get vaccinated. COVID-19 vaccine. Right. Wow. Now that's what you call a vaccination center. That's what you call a vaccination. Right under the spirit of Delta. So are you going to require? Your stuff. Bearing in mind, you've pretty much vaccinated the entire workforce and yeah. families. Are yeah, we, yeah we, have, we have well over 60% of our employees have had at least one shot. So we're on our way, and I expect we'll get to somewhere between 75 and 80% of our employees vaccinated. I'm not going to mandate and force people if they have some specific reason why they don't want to get vaccinated, but I'm going to strongly encourage them to make sure they understand the risk to not getting vaccinated. One, one caveat to that, though, any person joining Delta in the future future employer we're going to mandate they be vaccinated before they they can sign up with the company right so so uh, there will be a requirement to be vaccinated to become a delta employee for the future for the but future. anyone that is already here as an employee i don't think that's fair to someone to force them to get vaccinated if there if there's some philosophical issue they have right but with that philosophical issue might come consequences in the sense that you would say to them right it's your right not to be vaccinated but you can't do this, yes. or we're going to require you to do that, That's right. or you'll have to have weekly tests for the other. That's exactly Is that right. what you're going to do? Yeah. For example, you probably will not be able to fly an international flight if you are not vaccinated because it's going to be mandated by local authorities in order to get into the country that you're vaccinated. Wow. I look at the future. More first move after the break. back to first move. Commission-free trading apps have been opening up stock markets to millions of new investors. But financial education is becoming a key issue, with some platforms criticised for allowing novices to invest in risky assets. In today's Think Big, Issa Suarez takes a look at a new trading app in Dubai that focuses on education. Here's what's up in the markets. Stock markets around the world slipped on Tuesday as investors... This is not your usual morning bulletin. It's the first of many podcasts that will educate a new generation of online investors in the Middle East. I think we're seeing a boom of these online trading platforms right now. Everyone has access to smartphones, so it's really easy access. You're seeing a lot of self-directed people because commissions are now zero. Free trading has encouraged millions of amateurs to invest and get involved in the markets. It's a trend that has been accelerated with the access from platforms like Robinhood and eToro. Retail investors accounted for around 20% in US stock trading volumes in 2020. In the heart of Dubai's financial district, entrepreneur Faraz Jalboot wants to help new investors in this part of the world navigate the world of finance. The next big idea is educating, enabling, and empowering Middle East investors with a commission-free investment platform. Jalboot is launching a new platform called Baraka 
that will help new amateur traders invest in the U.S. stock market. Baraka is a mobile app. You transfer funds into the account and you can start investing right away. The idea is that it's accessible, it's easy to use. What makes this app different is the way it aims to educate its new investors, providing access to educational content and information about trading. A lot of uh, people in, the, in, in MENA didn't even know what a stock was. We found that there's a massive gap in the market, whether it was related to educational content or current events, that spoke to our demographic. A team of web designers and finance experts produce videos, newsletters, infographic explainers and morning podcasts. The main risks and the mistakes that new traders make is, is they try to make too much money too quickly. They don't do enough research and homework so that they know what they're doing and they know what they're owning on the underlying basis. Jalboot believes raising financial awareness and his platform is key to reducing risks as he continues his mission to democratize the financial markets. We don't ex expect everyone to be a professional hedge fund manager or professional uh, investor, but we just want to get people invested. Bridging the gap between the professional brokers and the amateur investors. Isa Suarez, CNN. And finally, cartoon lovers of a certain age will remember this catchphrase from their youth. Great hair. Oh yes, back in 1982, He-Man and Masters of the Universe reigned supreme as a massive cartoon and merchandise tie-up. Well, now the Masters are coming back. With a new animated series coming to Netflix in July and expect plenty of lucrative collectibles to boot, we promised all the old characters with Mark Hamill from Star Wars doing the voice of Skeletor and Buffy star Sarah Michelle Gellar as Tila. There she is. Oh, she's running in there to get, get some clothes. Yes. Um, that's it for the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they will be on my Twitter and Instagram pages. Search for at CNN. Stay safe. Connect the world with Becky Anderson is next and I'll see you next week. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.